0: In the Word of God uh, to the book of Esther. We are continuing, of course, in this series of Notable Women in the Bible. And today we want to uh, look at the wonderful story of Esther. Esther is one of those stranger than fiction stories. You literally could not make it up. The best script writers in Hollywood. Could not have written such a gripping tale of intrigue and tension. There are so many undercurrents going on in this story. Massive egos are on display. Long festering racial hatreds come to the fore. A megalomaniac king with a ruthless streak makes decrees on a whim, particularly when he's drunk speaking of drunkenness, there are wild, ostentatious, drunken parties with the leading political figures of the day. That sounds kind of up-to-date, doesn't it? And then in the mix of all of that, there is this young, beautiful, orphan Jewess who actually enters a worldwide beauty contest and wins it hands down and because of that becomes the Queen of Persia. As I said, you could not make this story up. The book of Esther, I believe, is a real page-turner. I defy you to begin to read it, really read it, and be able to not let down until you finish. It's just, it's that good of a story. The book of Esther also has the distinction of being the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. But as Matthew Henry wrote, though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is, directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. And so all through this book, the overriding, overarching theme is providence. The providence of God. God working behind the scenes. Mostly unknown to those he's working through and with. Directing and guiding uh, so that his will and his purpose comes to pass. And so we'll see a lot of the providence of God in this story. Out of the 66 books in the Bible, only two are, uh, have got the names of women attached to them. One, of course, is Esther. The other is the book of Ruth. Now, it's not my message today, but for those of you who like to do devotions or a little maybe private Bible study of your own, you really ought to uh, see the contrast between these two remarkable uh, women of God. Uh, One was, of course, a foreigner living uh, in a Jewish land, and one was a Jew living in a foreign land. One was an orphan, one was a widow. One was a penniless peasant. The other married the most powerful man in the world. One lived among barley fields. One lived in a palace. And yet, both these women God honored very, very highly indeed. We know that Ruth eventually, of course, uh, she married and became the the great-grandmother of King David and actually became in the very... Uh, in the very lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we see that in the Gospels. And then, of course, uh, we see Esther here, and we know that uh, she saved her whole nation from annihilation and a great Holocaust. And uh, So it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And in a moment, we're going to begin to read this uh, amazing story of Esther, beginning in chapter 1. And even though Esther herself is not mentioned in chapter 1, uh, but it's vital that we read this first chapter because then we... Unless we do we'll really not know what 's going on and the see in the providence of God in action here. Now the events of the book of Esther chronologically is somewhere between uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in that timeline period and we know that the Esther book of, Esther, uh, book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah we know the deal largely uh, with those Jews who come out of the Babylonian captivity and rather than stay in Persia, went back to their homeland. And so Ezra and Nehemiah deals with them. But we also know that this book of Esther deals largely with those Jews whom, after they had been relieved of their Babylonian captivity, decided to stay in Persia and assimilate into society there. And so Esther deals with with those Jews that are living in Persia. Now the great Medo-Persian Empire at this point here in our story was ruled by King Ahasuerus. Secular historians tell us that this is none other than Xerxes. Uh, X-E-R-X-E-Z. Xerxes. Uh, this kingdom, this Persian kingdom had previously been ruled by his father, Darius I, and by his grandfather, Cyrus. Now interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 45, 100 to 200 years before Cyrus was even born, God prophesied, Isaiah prophesied from the Lord that Cyrus would be born and he would be a tremendous aid and help to God's people, and he was. And so both Cyrus and Darius the First, both of them are involved in the, in the release of the captives from Babylon and also in the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem. And uh, some believe that Ezra the scribe actually wrote this book of Esther. Now, it may have been him. We're not 100% sure. Uh, some believe actually it was, uh, it was Mordecai. Uh, we'll read about him in a moment. Uh, but the truth is we really don't know exactly who wrote it. But what we do know for sure is that it was recorded in the chronicles, or in the records of the kingdom of Persia. And it was there recorded. Now, this particular king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as he was formerly known, he had a son called Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes uh, followed after him and he reigned in his stead. And it was Artaxerxes that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to. And it was through Artaxerxes, this man's son, probably by the influence of Queen Esther, his stepmother, that Artaxerxes was a great help to Nehemiah and, remember, sent him back to help to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and actually paid for a large part of that to do that. So this is a whole dynasty we're talking about here over many, many years four kings we have just mentioned here. And so it's in the midst of this where we're going to pick up this particular story. So anyway, many Jews decided after their Babylonian captivity that they would stay uh, in Persia, and they would assimilate themselves to become part of Persian society. And even though, I'm sure, particularly the most orthodox ones, the most Jewish ones, the most religious Jews, they would do their best to try to keep their religion intact as much as they could, but also they would obey the laws of the land at the same time. And uh, But they would try to keep their Jewish roots and traditions going, keep them alive as indeed many Jewish people around the world today who's living in other nations do even to this day. Now, Mordecai, a Jew, uh, he remained and ended up working in the courts of Ahasuerus in the capital Shushan. Some of your translations may say Susa. Uh, Shushan was this great Persian city. It would be the summer residence of King Ahasuerus. He had other massive cities also. But this Mordecai, he ended up, and we don't know how, but somehow or other he ended up working uh, in the courts of King Ahasuerus. And I suppose the best way to describe him in today's terms, he would have been a high-ranking civil servant, if we could put it that way. Now, this Mordecai, he raised as his own daughter his little cousin, Ahasuerus. this little girl, uh, Esther or Hadassah was her Hebrew name. Uh, her mother and father died. This is Mordecai's uncle and aunt. So he took—he was a much older man, Mordecai—but he took it upon himself to raise up this little girl. He just didn't want her to be left. So he raised her up as his own daughter, as it were, even though uh, it was his little cousin. And that's how she comes into play in this story as well. By the way, the geographical area we're talking about here in our story uh, would be somewhere in the region of Iran-Iraq, modern-day Iran-Iraq. The Persian Empire uh, was known as Persia uh, up until around about 1935, uh, whenever it became much more widely known as Iran, the Iran that we know today. In 1920, uh, the state of Iraq was brought into being. And it is believed that the city here, uh, Shushan, that the capital city of Ahasuerus, is actually about 250 miles southwest of of Baghdad in Iraq today. And uh, so much, of course, that's happening in Iran and Iraq. uh, There's lots of uh, old ancient history, particularly throughout the Bible, relating to that. So with all of that in mind, and with all of that as a kind of a backdrop to our story, uh, we want now to begin to read uh, from the book of Esther, uh, reading from the very first chapter. Are you all still with me? All right, I know that's sometimes a little bit necessary to take in, but it helps you to understand the story as we go through it. So Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over one hundred and twenty seven provinces from India to Ethiopia, so that gives you an idea of the of the extent excuse me, sorry about that that gives me gives you an idea of the extent of his kingdom. This is from North Africa way over to India, and everywhere in between. This was the most massive empire in the world. This was the superpower of its day. And he, of course, was the king. And in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. Now, the citadel actually was part of the city, Shushan, the capital, but it was this great fortified palace. Now, archaeologists say, not that there's hardly any of it left, but archaeologists tell us that Shushan, the capital, uh, was something about seven miles in circumference. So this is a massive, massive city. And just across the river from that, on a high plateau, would be this citadel, this great fortified palace with all kinds of ramparts. It was impregnable, and it was the most fantastic palace of its day. The sheer scale of it and size of it and opulence of it it is almost hard for us to imagine uh, in this modern day. And so, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. This is the longest recorded party in history. It lasted for six months, would you believe? Six months, every day, partying. Now, we don't know whether all of these nobles and Leading politicians of the day. Well, they all came at the same time and all stayed for six months at the same time. Perhaps not. Perhaps they came from various provinces at a time, and lavish parties was held for them. Uh, and maybe they would go back and maybe return again, but because there lots of business they had to do. But for what we do know is it lasted for six months, and it was very ostentatious. It was very opulent. I mean, every kind of food would be would be set on the table and the drink would be flowing. Now, again, we only know this from secular history, but the reason why he invited all of his nobles and princes from all of his provinces was because he was planning a war against Greece. His father, Darius, had had two wars against Greece, both times defeated, both times he came back with a bloody nose, And so time had elapsed, and so Ahasuerus' son thought, well, it's time to get even. And so he invites all of his leaders to come because he's going to need their help to do this, and he's going to need their money to do it as well. So he's he's partying them, and he's softening them up because he's got an agenda to do, and he wants them to be involved. So that's what history tells us. But then it says in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast... "'lasting seven days for all the people "'who were present in Shushan the citadel "'from great to small "'in the court of the garden of the king's palace. "'And there were white and blue linen curtains "'fastened with cords of fine linen "'and purple and silver rods and marble pillars. "'And the couches were made of gold and silver "'on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, "'turquoise, white and black marble. "'And they served drinks in golden vessels, "'each vessel being different from the other.' With royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So what's all that saying? That at the end of the six months, his one final big blast of a party. This is the mother of all parties. This is the party to end all parties. This man was a party animal. He lived for parties, as you'll see as we get through the book. And so the wine was in abundance. Do you know that the, that the bill for alcohol in number 10 Downing Street is astronomical? Do you know whatever the leaders of all these G7 and G20 summits get together. It's one great big booze up. Sad to say that much alcohol is consumed in the center of power and nations. It's no wonder so many foolish decisions are made. And so here is this great massive party going on and this thing about drinking, according to however you like. That was because different nations had different rules about how they were to consume alcohol, by the way. And so he says, well, you can just do whatever you like. I'm going to put it on the table. You can take it or not take it, drink as much as you like or as little as you like, but it'll be there in abundance. That's what that's saying. And then it says in verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the woman in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So here is this queen And while he's dining and whining the men, she's whining and dining the leader's wives in her part of her palace. And you can be sure it would equally be as lavish uh, there as it was for the men also. So all these parties are going on. A lot of drink is being consumed. Things as people's beginning to lose their inhibitions. Their judgments are being impaired. All this is happening. And then on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, when he was inebriated, when his judgment was severely impaired with wine, he commanded, Mehumah, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, zith, Zetar, and Carcas, seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Here's what he commanded them, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people of the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Now you'll see in a moment or two that actually she probably, and I'm sure was, the most beautiful woman in the whole empire. And you can be sure he hand-picked her. And so when they're well-oiled, as we say, when they're quite drunk, And they're bored. He showed them everything he has to show them. The only thing left is his wife. And so he sends and calls, commands her to come. But listen what happens. Verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. He was incandescent with rage. Now, why did she refuse? Because she knows to refuse an order from the king would not go down well. More than that, she knows that in all probability it could cost her her very life. This is a capricious king who's ruthless, who would kill you in a blink of an eye. And she knows it. She has seen it happen many, many times. So for her to refuse at this point, this took great courage to do this. Now it always puzzled me why she refused. Some commentator said this was the beginning of woman's lib. <laughs> but I don't think it was that. None of it's going to cost you your life. But the Targum, which is the, it's the Hebrew Bible translated into Aramaic, it proposes... And I have a feeling this could be right, that he commanded her to come and to present herself naked with just a crown. It had to be something, it had to be something desperate for her to refuse to come before the king because this could cost her her very life. And if that's the case, there is no possible way that this woman, listen, pagan though she was, pagan though she was, at least she had some sense of decency and some sense of morality where she said no. She was not going to appear in front of all that drunken, lecherous, leering crowd of men, no matter what it cost. Let me tell you, this pagan woman has some courage. There's a lot of so-called celebrities today would strip off at a drop of a hat for a lot less than this and be proud to do it and tell you they're proud to do it and have their name on the front page of the paper and be happy about it. But she refused. And the king is furious. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshena, Shetar, Admetha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marsena Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. In modern day terms, this would have been the king's privy council. This would have been his private counsellors. So he calls for them and he says, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of the king Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. All he's concerned about is his pride, his massive ego. That's all he's concerned about. Amemuchan answered before the king and princes. "'Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, "'but also all the princes "'and all the people who are in the provinces "'of King Ahasuerus. "'For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, "'so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes, "'and they will report. "'When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti "'to be brought before him, but she did not come. "'This very day the noble ladies of Persia media "'will say to all the king's officials "'that they have heard of the behavior of the queen.' Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Medes and Persians, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is greater than she." And when the king's decree which he made is proclaimed throughout all the empire for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands both great and small. (laughs) Now you ought to understand that these privy counsellors had a lot of influence over the king. And you can understand the Jockeying for position of these top, top civil servants. How many people know the Mandarins of Whitehall, our government, has got great power with ministers? You know that, don't you? Yes, yeah, of course they do. And so there's maybe some intrigue going on here. And, and this Mihuhan saw his opportunity. Let's get rid of Vashti. She, she's maybe not playing ball with them at all. The king's decree shall make us proclaim throughout all his empire. Listen to this. All wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Imagine thinking that legislation would make wives obey their husbands. (laughs) Imagine thinking that a stroke of a pen, the government could make a rule. Let me tell you, our government makes all kinds of rules about morality and about behavior and even about married life that's not going to change anything but to make them anyway. And the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mihukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. So, you've got the background now, haven't you? Now, after these things, chapter 2, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, three years has elapsed. And again, historians tell us that in that three years, that's when he made his attack against Greece. And it was a massive attack against Greece. But lo and behold, he was soundly defeated, both on land and on sea. And he had to come back to his kingdom a defeated king, like his father before him. Now, all of this is in the providence of God. All of it. Including what happened to Vashti, as we're going to see in a moment. All of it. God was moving behind the scenes of nations and kings and queens and men and women. And he's still doing it to this very day. The Bible makes it clear the powers that be are ordained of God. And God can lift one up and he can put one down. Nations can disappear overnight. Empires can disappear overnight. And so, he's come back from the battle. He's lost the war. And now he's remembered he's lost his wife. And he's feeling quite miserable. Never a good idea when a despot is miserable. You've got to cheer him up. There's no telling what he'll do. He's in a bad mood. And so, then the king's servants, verse 2 of chapter 2, then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom that they may gather all the young beautiful virgins to Shushan the citadel into the woman's quarters under the custody of Higai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the woman. And let beauty preparations be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king and he did so. And so the word has gone out. The king needs a new queen. So they would send out all of the men all over the whole empire, from Africa to India and everywhere in between. And they would gather up the most beautiful woman of the land. They would scoop them up and bring them here to Shushan and to the palace. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Esther means star, by the way. And she was a star in this story, as you'll see as we go through it. Uh, That was her Persian name, named after a particular Persian god. Hadassah means myrtle. And so, this Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when it was, when the king's command and decree were heard... And many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace in the care of Hegai, the custodian of the woman. Now, let's just stop another wee second. Again, the providence of God. The king sends out to his whole empire to find a queen, and little did he know that the one that he was going to have was right under his very nose. And God had planted her there all these years. God had put it in the heart of Mordecai. He probably hadn't known at that point, of course, and here she is, ready, ready to be moved into place, like a giant chessboard. God is moving the man and the pieces around, according to his will and purpose. Now, the young woman pleased him. this is Hegai, the custodian of the woman. And she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of woman. So suddenly she finds favor with this eunuch. Just like Joseph of old found favor First of all with Potiphar and then favor with the king and favor with the jailer when he was in jail. God has a way of, of moving people into places of favor and he's doing that with Esther here. It says in verse 10 that Esther had not revealed her people or family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Why? Why did they not want her saying that she was a Jew, Esther? He even was a Jew because there's still still a lot of anti-Semitism in the kingdom of Persia, even at that particular time, as we'll see more of that in a moment or two. So every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the woman's quarters, he wasn't allowed in there, to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Now, whether she volunteered, which is probably highly unlikely, Or whether Mordecai actually put her forward as one of the contestants in this great beauty contest for the king, we're not sure. But again, in the providence of God, she's there. And so, he's watching out for his young cousin. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed twelve months' preparation according to the regulations for the woman. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned: six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for a beautifying woman. That is a one-year extreme makeover, isn't it? A year's preparation. Of course, they would find out in that time, just in case any of them He's no dozer, this king also, just in case any of them that came to him actually had been pregnant because he wasn't going to get the blame for any children that weren't his. So he's making sure a good time has elapsed, plus it would be beautiful by the time they approach him. And of course, when the t- time came, they had to approach him, of course. Now look what it says in verse 14. Sorry, in verse 13. Thus prepared each woman went to the king And she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the woman to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's unit who kept the concubines. Now sometimes we just read over these things not really fully understanding the ramifications of what we just read. This was a beauty contest like no other. There was only one judge in this one. And she had to go in, every one of them, every night, night after night, go into the king at night and leave in the morning. I don't have to explain to you what was happening there. In Hollywood starlets, this would be the casting couch, to put it bluntly. And if you didn't pass muster, you'd have to go not back to the court that you'd been to for that year. You'd have to go to this other eunuch's place, Shazgaz, where he had a whole harem for the king of concubines. And once you go in there, you're never ever out again, unless and until the king may or may not send for you. So any ambitions that you may have had of meeting a young man of your dreams and getting married, are gone forever for these young women. Not only that, they would never ever see their families again. They'd never be able to return for their land again. And they're stuck here forever until the king probably dies. That's not a very nice position to be in. But that's what concubines were. They were just chattels of the king. He didn't care about them. Nobody really cared about them. They were just there for the king's pleasure, when and if he so choose. Now, in that setting, Mordecai knows that his young cousin Esther is also going to have to go into the king. And if she is not chosen to be queen, she's also going to be part of the concubines. And her life from that point will be effectively over. So this is a very high-risk venture. If he's the one who's been pushing it, he's taken a massive risk putting his young cousin in the line of fire here with this king. Now when it came turn for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the woman, advised. All the others took what they wanted, but it came her turn. She says, well, whatever you want to give me, I'll take. She wasn't going in with any ambition. And in fact, she was so beautiful, she probably felt that she really didn't need anything. Maybe a little bit of moisturizer. Maybe a little dab of perfume behind each ear. That's all she needed. Her beauty would speak for itself or not, depending But look what happens when she went in. Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. See, many times it's mentioned about her obtaining favor. See, this is the providence of God again. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now notice we come from the third year to the seventh year. He had three years of war. Now a year of preparation to find a queen, so we're now into the seventh year. The king loved Esther more than all the other women and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Verse 19, when virgins were gathered together a second time. So even though he's got his queen, he liked the idea of all these beautiful women coming from all over the lands, so he keeps that going. His harem's not quite full yet. Maybe he had hundreds. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women, and it still didn't please him. Now listen to this. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the commandment of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So she's very subservient and submissive to this older man who treated her like a daughter. And in those days while Mordecai sat, In the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now we don't know why they became furious. Some political intrigue going on here again in the palace said they sought to lay hands upon King Ahasuerus. In other words, they plotted to assassinate him. That's what that means. And so... The matter became known to Mordecai who told Queen Esther and Esther informed a king in Mordecai's name. Now she could have took all the credit for this for herself now that she's queen but she didn't. She honors this man who brought her up as his own daughter. So she makes sure when she tells the king hey, I found this out through Mordecai. She made sure he told him that. And when an inquiry was made into the matter it was confirmed And both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. See that little line there? It was written in the books of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That is so important to the whole story. And once again, it's in the providence of God once again, unbeknown to either Esther or Mordecai or the king or anybody, God get that written into the chronicles of the book of the king so that later on that would be an ace card to play in the whole scene that's going to unfold before us. So this is a tremendous story of God working behind the scenes. You know, God's going to deliver a nation through this young woman. And God had delivered this nation before. Remember whenever they were in Egypt? Remember how God delivered them with signs, wonders, with great miracles? Remember how he brought ten plagues to Egypt? And it opened up the Red Sea? And then fed his people in the desert with manna? Brought water out of a flinty rock to quench the thirst of two million people? You know, had this great pillar of cloud by day to shield them from the heat of the sun, this great pillar of fire by night to heat them in the desert. All great signs and wonders and miracles. But you can't find that in the book of Esther. No miracles, no signs, no wonders, no Red Sea's opening, just the providence of God. He's still going to deliver his people. He's still going to do it but he's going to do it quietly. He's going to do it behind the scenes. Why am I telling you that? Because I know that in our difficult situations of life, many times we want an angel to appear. We want a Red Sea to open. We want the mountain to disappear. We want all kinds of things to happen. And sometimes it doesn't. We think God's asleep and he doesn't care. But maybe in those times, God is working his providence in our lives providence is so easy seen from hindsight when you look back in your life you can see the hand of God it's hard to see it at the time but when you look back you can see God moving the scenery behind your life bringing people across your path things happening that you hadn't planned you know sometimes it happens it's not so good you hadn't planned that but in the overall picture he makes all things work together for our good so things are shifting behind the scenes and when you look back on it you can say the hand of God was in that The beginning of this week, this past week when I was preparing this message for today I was so sure I was so sure I was going to do it in 45 minutes but by but Wednesday I said to myself there is no possible way I can do this in one 45 minute sermon, it just can't be done not to do any justice whatsoever there's just so many good things in this that we need to know and hear for our benefit too especially for our benefit. So, I'm sorry to leave you hanging, but, I'm going to continue tonight. So all's not lost. You can come. You don't have to stay away. You can come here the second half. That would be wonderful. Praise God. And I promise you, the best is yet to come. You know, Raymond just happened to ring me on Friday about something, and I was sitting in the chair Friday afternoon. I was reading this, and just when he rang me, I was reading a certain part, and I was laughing to myself. I was, I was literally laughing to myself, and I thought, God, this is, this is brilliant. <laughs> Only God would have thought of that. It's, parts of it is very, very funny, actually, but you're going to see the hand of God in a wonderful, wonderful way. And then you can say to yourself, God, if you can do that then, you can do this now. God, you're doing it now. You're doing it in my life. Your hand is in my life every single day. I don't have to know everything. I just know that God's in control. That's all you gotta know. God's in control. Amen. And so, God willing tonight. All right. And then next Sunday morning, I'll do another notable woman, because we we'll not a speaker next Sunday night, and then we'll skip it the following because John Edwards will be here. And what will John be speaking on next that Sunday? The Holy Spirit you can be absolutely guaranteed that's the one thing he will speak on the Holy Spirit. And then we'll pick up where we left off, God willing, the next Sunday morning because the week after that is the drama, is the musical. So I'll just get one shot out on that Sunday morning. Amen. All right, so Brother Tony is going to come and he's going to lead us in the Lord's table this morning. I'm sorry.